0: A year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering. A ram without defect for a fellowship offering. Together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket of bread made without yeast. Cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil and wafers spread with oil. The priest is to present them before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread And is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord, together with its grain offering and drink offering. Then at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off off the hair that he dedicated. He is to take the hair, put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place in his hands a boiled shoulder of the ram, and a cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast." The priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation. In addition to whatever else he can afford, he must fulfill the vow he has made according to the law of the Nazarite. And we end our reading... At verse 21, may God bless his word to our hearts today. Shall we just have a moment's prayer? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow in your presence, we come to your word, your word which is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. We pray, O God, that this word would speak to us today. We pray, O God, that through this word, we may be drawn closer to you in consecration and love. So bless all that is said. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Within the Presbyterian tradition of our church, the communion season has always been marked out as very special. Historically, there were only two seasons or times when communion was celebrated in the Presbyterian church, usually May and November. Presbyterians say that communion is very special to us, but that has sometimes intrigued other churches and other faiths and other denominations because they say, well, if if communion is so special, why do you only celebrate it so rarely? Initially, twice a year. Uh, For many Presbyterian churches now, quarterly or four times a year. And here in Heikert, we celebrate it six times a year. But the question comes why, if you think it's so special, do you celebrate it so rarely? And perhaps the answer to that is less is more. If we were doing it every week, as some other denominations do, perhaps there is the danger of becoming blasé about it, or maybe not seeing it as especially significant. Now, there probably is a balance here. Perhaps the Presbyterian church is uh, inclining a little bit too much to the lesser, but there's no doubt about it that whenever it's not happening so often, it perhaps is imbued with a special significance. I'm old enough uh, to remember whenever I came through on profession of faith as a as a teenager to Wellington Street Presbyterian. There was a lot of talk about the communion season, and the communion season was the Wednesday pre-communion or Thursday pre-communion, and then the Sunday morning after you had prepared your heart, you were then in a place to come to the Lord's table on a Sunday morning. And then the communion season ended on the Sunday evening where there was a Thanksgiving service on the Sunday evening where you gave thanks for the communion that you took on the Sunday morning. Now, does anyone recognize that as a thing? Just give me a wee wave. A few of us, okay. So I'm obviously older than I thought (laughs) in remembering the communion season. But there's something about that that is good there's something about it which creates an expectation and an an anticipation as we come to the table that God will nourish us and speak to us and and do something special with us. To miss communion was a big deal. And in fact, in the code of the Presbyterian Church, if you have not attended communion for two years, you're meant to to show good reason to the Kirk session why you have been missing from communion for two years. It's taken very seriously. Now, in our modern church and modern life, perhaps some of these kind of things, they kind of drift away, don't they? And we don't maybe take things like this as seriously as we have before. And maybe that's okay, but maybe maybe that's a bad thing. And whenever I was reading Numbers chapter six about the Nazarite vow, I thought about the communion season and about what we are about to do. The Nazarite vow is found here in Numbers chapter six. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible. And it speaks of a consecration or a vow that the Lord provided to anybody, male or female, who wished to set aside a time to draw closer to God. There were three elements to a Nazarite vow which may seem quite strange to us. The first element was that they were not allowed to take any alcohol or any wine. In fact, even more than that, they weren't allowed to eat grapes or raisins. The second element of the vow was that they were not to cut their hair. And then the third element of the vow, as long as... the the vow went on, they weren't to go near any dead bodies or funerals, even, and this is where it is really strict, even if there was a relative, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister who died. Now the commentaries as they look at these rituals have a a variety of reasons why they think these rituals may have been put in place, but we're we're not sure because it, it is not explained, it's never explained in scripture. In terms of the not drinking alcohol or not taking grapes or raisins, one commentary suggests that because it takes about three years for a vine to grow and to produce um, grapes, that this was a symbol of the Nazarites saying that I'm looking forward to a better land. It's not so much about this earth and, and this land and the planting and the cultivation of crops here. I'm looking to hereafter. So that's a possible interpretation. I'm I'm not sure about that. Obviously, another way of looking at it is that we just want to have a sense of soberness and self-control in what we do. The priests, the Levite priests, uh, whenever they were serving the tabernacle, they were not to take any alcohol. Uh, But this was for longer than that. This was for the, the season, and indeed for some of them perhaps, all of their lives, In avoiding alcohol, perhaps they were also saying, I want to be in total control of my body, my senses, and all that I do. I want to honor the Lord in in a sober way. But we're not sure, But, but certainly these are some possible reasons for that part of the vow. In terms of allowing the hair to grow, perhaps the hair was seen as a sign of life. And that as you were growing your hair, male and female, it was a sign of God's abundance, of God's life in us. Now for, for some of us, growing our hair long is gonna be a challenge. For, for others of us, it's, it's easier. Uh, but it was certainly, as far as the man was concerned, it was a public witness that I am doing something different. I'm trying not to look at Philip McCartney, but anyway. <laughs> it's, it, it's, a, it's a public witness that I am doing something different unto the Lord. Uh, for ladies, it wouldn't have been just as obvious, but it would have become obvious whenever their hair was shaved at the end of the vow. People would have said, oh, right, they must have been taking part in a Nazarite vow, but perhaps this idea of, of the life of God is, is flowing through me, through, through my hair. And then the third part of the vow was to avoid a dead body. Again, for a priest serving in the tabernacle, this was a requirement But the Nazarite vow went further because whereas a priest could attend the funeral of a relative, the Nazarite could not, it was a very extreme vow. And in fact if someone did find or someone dropped dead in front of them, the idea was that you had to go through the whole process again, you had to shave your hair, you had to start the process again of the vow. We we read that in number six, it was taken very seriously. In the context of those days and in the context of the camp, there was always a great fear of disease and infection. And so you'll find these kind of rituals and laws through Leviticus and Numbers, where if someone you know, was, was unwell or was ill or was, there was a disease, there was this kind of uh, cordon sanitaire put around them because there was a fear of infection in the camp. It reminded me a little bit of those early days of COVID, when the, um, the gravediggers had to wear special outfits and, and we weren't just sure about infection, even with dead bodies. It was an awful time. But here are the three uh, parts of the vow. Avoiding alcohol, grapes, raisins, grow your hair long, avoid dead bodies and funerals. Now probably the most famous Nazarite is Samson. Samson was not a good Nazarite. In all three of these things, he failed. He allowed his hair to be cut at, some, at one point. He was often touching dead bodies of people and animals. And of course, he was often feasting and partying. And so he wasn't a good Nazarite. And yet he was set apart for life as a Nazarite. Another possible Nazarite that we're aware of is the prophet Samuel. Again, no razor was to be used in his head. He was set apart to God. Perhaps John the Baptist was a Nazarite also. Uh, We're not sure, but there were elements of the vows that seemed to apply to these famous people. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 18, it speaks about the apostle Paul shaving his hair off because of a vow he had taken. Now, this may be referring to a Nazarite vow. Paul may have taken a Nazarite vow, or it may be another vow. We're not sure. But even in the days of Jesus and after the days of Jesus, some people were taking part in these kind of vows or times of consecration. And perhaps you're wondering, why, why, am I, why am I reading this? Why are we thinking about this? Because it seems so beyond our context, so irrelevant to us. So much of the Old Testament laws and regulations are fulfilled in Christ. Why are we talking about this today of all days? Well, I think partly because it's about consecration. The Lord provided this special kind of consecration for ordinary people. A witness to them saying, God is in the center of my life. He is important to me. And this in itself would have been an encouragement to others to consecration and dedication and faithfulness. Last week, Rowan spoke about the special calling of the Levites as they ministered at the tabernacle. And he made the the point, and I agree with him, that now through Christ and in Christ, we are all set apart. We are all, as it says in 1 Peter, a kingdom of priests. So you're a priest, and I'm a priest. You're a minister, and I'm a minister. We can approach the throne room of God, every one of us. We, We approach the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ. God has given gifts to his church, not just to a certain elite, not just to the Levites. He has given gifts to his church and to everyone in his church through the Holy Spirit. There are some church traditions where people consecrate their whole lives. Perhaps they take a vow of chastity or a vow of silence. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I want to encourage us to think about taking... A time of special dedication and consecration to the Lord. I'm not suggesting that you don't cut your hair or don't attend funerals. All those things are fulfilled in Christ. But I am suggesting, and especially on a day such as today, that it is good sometimes to draw back, to take stock, to renew and to reset ourselves, especially after covid And to say to ourselves, where is God? Is God close to me currently? Or does he feel far away? Is he he pushed out to the margins of my life? And fuzzy margins at that? Perhaps today is a good day, as, as good a day as any, to re-consecrate ourselves and say, Lord, I want you to be in the center. I want you to be king. I've been withholding from you. I've been drifting from you. I need to get back to the center. I need you, O God, to be in the center of my life. There is still room for special acts and times and seasons of consecration between you and the Lord. It may be a time of fasting. We don't often talk about fasting in the Presbyterian church. It could be fasting from food for a day or two. It could be fasting from technology could be fasting from television. It could be fasting in something that is very close to you and very dear to you that you surrender because you say, no, this is taking up too much of my time. This is taking up too much of my, my devotion. I need to get right with God. And so as we come to the table, in the silence as we eat and drink, it's a good time to examine our hearts to ask yourselves, where is the Lord? Where is my devotion? The Psalmist says in Psalm one hundred and thirty-nine, "Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." Whenever the Apostle Paul was writing about coming to the table, he says, "Don't come in an unworthy manner." Now that does not mean don't come to the table if you believe you're a sinner because we should come to the table. The table is for sinners. In a sense, all of us, every single one of us is unworthy. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to die for you. He had to die for me because we are sinners. But what Paul meant was that if you are in a habitual sin or if you have unconfessed sin in your life, or if you're harboring anger or or harboring unforgiveness, that needs to be dealt with before you come to worship and before you come to the table. Through confession or reconciliation, that needs to be dealt with. That's what it means to come in an unworthy manner. But we pray that as we come today, we have searched our hearts. And again, that's that's partly what pre-communion is about. It gives you that opportunity to search your heart and to say, Lord, is there anything wrong in me preventing me from coming to the table. The Nazarite vow may be gone. Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. Jesus Christ, I don't know how long his hair was. He he certainly touched dead bodies. He raised people from the dead. He was accused of being a wine-bibber. He was always at parties. But his life was consecrated to his father's will. And so should my life, and so should your life. And so as we come to this table in a moment, when we have that time of silence, examine your heart. Be still before God. Ask yourself, have I allowed other gods to creep in? Am I withholding from God? Am I am I withholding my tithe? How are you doing with your money and God? It's a very good heart monitor, I find, of where God is in your life. How's your giving? How's your your serving with the gift that God has given to you? And how's your time? Let's search our hearts. And may today be an encouragement for us to consecrate our lives to the King of Kings. To the Lord of Lords, because He is worth it all. He's worth it all. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we might personally have our own personal vows to you, our, our times of dedication and consecration. That, Lord, you might significantly speak to each one of us. Each of us are different, different challenges different sins, but Lord, we pray that we may rededicate our lives to you for your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. Uh, During this, this praise, again, if there's anyone in the balcony who wishes to partake of communion, please do join us on the ground floor. Thank you.